tenakoto katoa, ko Louisa Horman toko ingoa, no Whanganui aho. It's a real privilege to be back here in Te Whanganui Atara, uh, Wellington. This is where I lived and studied for six years. It's also where I undertook this project in 2015. So, nā mihi manatū taonga. Thank you to the Ministry of Culture and Heritage for the invitation and opportunity to share my research today. I'd especially like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the families um, who welcomed me into their homes and agreed to take part in this project. Their whānau members who are here today and those who cannot be, um, especially Sonny Mulheron of the Fuchs family who passed away earlier this year. Um, I'd like to thank the museum and heritage professionals who also gave of their time and expert knowledge um, to this project. My wonderful supervisor, Dr. Simone Gigliotti, and the Jack Pierce Research Scholarship for the constant support I received throughout my master's year. This project came out of my undergraduate interest in Holocaust history and migration studies, as well as my time spent volunteering at the Holocaust Centre of New Zealand. In the time we have today, I will outline the subject of my project, its influences and methodologies applied, and then discuss some of the objects brought to New Zealand by three families between 1939 and 1940. Although the arrival and legacy of Jewish refugees fleeing from Nazism in Aotearoa, New Zealand, has been explored in public and academic discourse, most notably through the foundational work of New Zealand historian Anne Beaglehole and art historian Leonard Bell, the material culture of Jewish refugee migration to this country has not been widely documented. The material culture of conflict and displacement more generally is an area of scholarship that has only recently, in the last five to 10 years, gained prominence among historians. The profession was historically wary of including material culture as a category of analysis or as a teaching tool. Similarly, oral history as a methodology was first met with reluctance and a common distrust of untraditional sources. But for public historians like me, it is artifacts, the material record and lived experiences that engage the individual. It is the power of the personal that helps the visitor or reader relate to the history before them. In the case of conflict and displacement especially, recent books like Objects of War, edited by Leora Auslander and Tara Zara in 2018, are making the strong case for a reconsideration and expansion of historical methodologies. Over time, the field has increasingly recognised such interdisciplinary approaches to historical research are no less scholarly and can actually broaden our understanding of past events. For my part, taking a material culture approach to this moment in New Zealand's history allowed me to ask new and different questions. I wanted to find out what kinds of things people brought with them to New Zealand. Having to make such hard decisions about what to take to start your new life, often in an unknown, unfamiliar place, and what you have to leave behind. And I was interested in the decisions made by refugee families to bequeath exilic objects as artefacts to descendants, local collections, and or to international institutions. Um, in the interest of time, I won't be discussing this latter part of my research, um, but what formed chapter three of my thesis is of available in an article form from Tuhinga, which is the Te Papa 
um, journal. From these objectives, two central research questions emerged. To what extent do refugee objects embody the memory of the pre-war European past? And how does the significance of these objects change for refugees and their descendants over time and in different custodial contexts? Such questions opened up issues of cultural identity and intergenerational memory. Uh, as my research explored the relationships between Holocaust survivor refugee families, their descendants, and the material objects they have inherited. But my material culture approach to the subject was also completely necessary. Researching at a time when there are mainly only second generation family members living, access to first generation experiences is in most cases limited to the, any existing oral history interviews, letters, diaries, and memoirs. The first generation, survivors of ghettos and camps in hiding and as refugees, really spoke of their experiences either within or outside the family. As a consequence of the silence, both their descendants and historians must rely on a combination of fragmentary records and the physical objects that remain. Second generation scholar Marianne Hirsch writes of, quote, the ruptures introduced by collective historical trauma, by war, Holocaust, exile, and refugeehood, end quote. This is especially pertinent to the case of the many European Jewish refugees whose personal possessions, cultural archives, and communal records were lost during the Holocaust. These ruptures, Hirsch suggests, severely impair both communicative memory and institutionalized cultural memory, so the memories linked between individuals and groups. This is because such ruptures disrupt the assumed lines of memory transmission, which would usually happen through embodied practice and symbolic systems, um, which she describes as connecting individual to family, to social group, and to institutionalized historical archive. Histories, she says, are suppressed and eradicated, and I would add to that dispersed. She argues the concept of post-memory acts as bridging reparative mode by which these ruptures can be counteracted. Post-memory, in Hirsch's own words, quote, describes the relationship of the second generation to powerful, often traumatic experiences that preceded their births, but that were nevertheless transmitted to them so deeply as to seem to constitute memories in their own right, end quote. Memory here is not distinctly recall, rather post-memory's connection to the past is mediated, um, she describes, by imaginative investment, projection, and creation. These events happened in the past, but their effects continue into the present, end quote. Significantly, Hirsch emphasizes the role of material culture in these processes, arguing that testimonial objects, objects, images, and stories bequeathed to the second generation, quote, carry memory traces from the past, but they also embody the very process of its transmission, end quote. The most recent study at the time of writing this thesis um, drew upon post-memory theory and the role of family objects in the context of the second generation. And this was Nina Fisher's 2015 book, Memory Work, The Second Generation. Fisher observed how the second generation engages with the pre-Holocaust family and their parents' survival through a comparative analysis of English language literary texts written by second-generation authors in countries of post-war Jewish diasporas. 
but she departs from the dominant trauma studies approach to instead argue that dependent on the subject, possibilities for accessing the past and the individual's conscious decision to engage in memory work, um, members of the second generation are able to reconnect with their family's past in, past in spite of catastrophic loss. In her chapter, Objects, Fisher describes the moment of coming into possession of a family heirloom as a point of memory transmission, which emphasises continuity and connectivity, and at times, the significant lack thereof, as first-generation silence limits the ability of objects to carry a usable past. Fisher argues that compared to families of camp survivors, quote, for children of refugees, there are more possibilities to connect to a usable past of family and origins through physical objects rather than associating their absence with negativity and loss, end quote. She notes that, in most cases, unless the parents escaped, internment and displacement made it impossible to maintain a tradition of inheritance in former European Jewish families, end quote. My study on pre-war refugee migration shows that even when the parents did escape, this could still in some cases result in a comparable loss of objects due to belongings left behind, sold to raise funds for immigration, or being lost or destroyed en route to New Zealand, in the case of the Zimon family. Fisher's work on pre-Holocaust family objects importantly recognises the individual agency of refugees and their descendants in determining their ability to use objects in second-generation memory work but does not consider the movement of migratory objects out of private families and into public heritage institutions. My work extended Fisher's thesis beyond the private sphere to interrogate the perspectives of both families and collecting institutions and the active role of collective memory in the decision-making um, around this process. I found that New Zealand's German-Jewish refugee objects bear multiple identities and meanings as a result of their dispersed transnational history. As the refugee objects move, moved out of different cultural and custodial contexts, they acquired new significances in relation to their condition of inheritance, use in the custodial environment, and role in shaping cultural identity and collective memory, both in the second generation family and in the public archive. My project employed two main qualitative research approaches, oral history interviews with refugee survivor families and industry interviews with professionals working in the New Zealand heritage sector. Um, both um, interviews were semi-structured and the examination of material objects. I used three kinds of testimony. My own oral history interviews recorded with the second generation and one with a first generation refugee. Um, existing pre-recorded oral history interviews with first generation refugees, uh, and the original letters, memoirs, and reminiscences of the first generation. It was important for my research to find alternative ways of accessing the first generation of refugees, as most had passed away before I began my project. This highlights the importance of family memory in diaspora and exile histories, and by extension, the importance of oral history as a research method at a time when the world is quickly losing Holocaust survivors. But moreover, when using such sources, it's important to acknowledge the different forms of memory accounts and to apply a nuanced interpretive approach in relation to whether the source is recorded in written or oral form. 
Um, for example, there is a fluid interactive aspect in the oral history interview, which isn't present in written um, in the written format of a memoir, for instance. Yet reminiscences are often fragmented in nature and are usually undated. So while they provide detailed insight um, into what is remembered by the first generation, they shouldn't be considered in isolation as one could miss important context provided in another account. Likewise, the lack of depth and detail in a first generation oral history interview can be strengthened by the detail and perspectives provided by other testimonial sources such as letters or um, that were written by the interviewee at the time of migration. Um, so I used as wide a range of testimonial accounts as possible in order to consider the remembered past from a range of moments in the lived memory of first-generation refugees. So both the immediate and retrospective records. My inclusive approach to the definition of material culture included both inscribed objects or like textual documents and uninscribed objects such as a domestic um, or ornamental object. But while these particular um, privately held objects are as yet untapped historical sources, they are also partial sources. The information gained from the objects themselves is limited without examining the associated family papers for context. Um, most of the documents that were made available to me for study required transcribing and translation um, from printed or handwritten German to English. So I have my mum to thank for um, helping with that as she's um, a native German speaker. I also photographed the objects spoken about in the interviews, building a visual collection of images from which to curate an electronic archive using the online collection management system eHive. Um, so this database was not absolutely complete or definitive, um, but it allowed me to visualise and draw comparisons um, between the objects of um, the different families I was looking at. Participants for this project were first identified through networks um, of the Holocaust Centre of New Zealand and previous research projects undertaken on this subject um, in my undergrad. The subject group included four German Jewish families and one fa family originating from Vienna, Austria. I included the Austrian family to illustrate the similarities of experience of Austrian Jews who were part of the same cosmopolitan culture and social class as those German Jews who had the ability to immigrate and after the Anschluss were subjected to the same anti-Jewish laws and regulations. With regard to my subject group, I am, however, only scraping the surface of the enormity and diversity of the objects that exist um, in private collections and of second-generation experiences more generally. For comparative purposes, I approached a limited number of families sharing similar experiences and so significantly narrowed my case study. But what more stories are out there? The offer of participation to families was for some an opening of the door for um, to the materials they had so long kept aside. Second generation survivors are, after all, agents of the production of memory after almost an entire generation of sil survivor silence. It was also necessary to limit the scope of my inquiry temporally to the pre-war migration of refugees. The pre-war period was when most refugees were able to escape Europe successfully or attempted to leave and bring extended family with them. 
as all borders were effectively closed with the outbreak of war on 1st September 1939. Although most refugees arrived in New Zealand before the outbreak of war, others like the Zemon family um, arrived shortly after the war had begun. For the purposes of this project, pre-war means that the family cons families considered as case studies must have left Germany by 1939 to fit the parameters of the study. This is an important distinction to note as the timing of when families were able to immigrate and how they did so determined what possessions they could take with them into refuge. In order to examine what individuals decided to take with them in the heightened migration context of forced displacement, my study focuses on the pre-war movement of people out of Europe. Refugees brought with them everything they could from their former homes. Today, I'll share a selection of items from three families who participated in my study. So on this um, slide here, we have um, some photos of pages from a book of um, letters um, written by um, a woman named Alma, but she was known as Alla to Thomas and Eva Gerson, and um, Alla was their nanny in Germany. As mentioned before, the actual things that German Jewish refugees brought into refuge largely depended on when they were able to leave Germany and when they arrived in New Zealand, noting that from 25th November 1941, the Nazi regime authorised the seizure of all Jewish property as Jews were simultaneously deported from the Reich. The later one left Germany, the less one could bring with them as mounting restrictions on the ownership and movement of private assets and harsh penalties made it increasingly difficult for refugees to bring their wealth and property with them. The obvious irony was that while the Nazi government wished its territories to be rid of Jews, they desired that their money and property should remain in Germany, which in turn made immigrating unmanageable and for many completely impossible. It should be noted at this point that although New Zealand was one of many countries sought as a refuge. The New Zealand government only accepted around 1,100 refugees from Europe between Hitler's rise to power and the outbreak of the Second World War. Per capita, this amounted to only one refugee per 1,500 of population of New Zealand compared to one refugee per 480 of population in the United Kingdom. Refugee arrivals in New Zealand were mostly Jewish or of Jewish descent and mainly came from Germany, Austria, and the former Czechoslovakia. Others also travelled from Hungary, Poland, and the Netherlands. But just like its Western allies, New Zealand immigration laws in this period actively discouraged Jewish immigration as the country's discriminatory immigration policies adopted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were reasserted uh, in the pre-war period, even towards those seeking asylum. Under the Immigration Restriction Act 1931, European aliens, or non-Britons, required guaranteed employment and capital or skills that would enable them to be assimilated into New Zealand society without detrimentally affecting New Zealand residents. All alien arrivals to New Zealand, including Jewish refugees, had to fulfil certain occupational categories and have their passage subsidised, or be able to afford both their passage and ongoing living costs, or with sponsorship. The German Jewish refugees who gained entry to New Zealand 
in this period came mainly from the assimilated middle class and liberal tradition in Germany. Most families were non-religious, but identified culturally with being Jewish. The Zimon family from Hamburg was the only practicing religious Jewish family of my study. Other families followed traditions like the Jewish fast days and holidays to accommodate their early, elderly and more orthodox family members. The generational shift from religious observance to assimilation in Germany was uh, commonplace following the long struggle for Jewish political and social emancipation uh, granted to Jews in Germany in 1871. And with social integration and broader access to education under full citizenship, the professional lives of German Jews diversified. Most German Jewish refugees in New Zealand were members of the professional or business classes as they could afford to both leave Germany and gain permits to immigrate. That said, moving to New Zealand posed significant economic constraints on refugees, and most had to adjust to a much lower standard of living once in New Zealand. The change from the bourgeois households of Central Europe to the housing shortage and small homes of New Zealand was radical. This impacted domestic roles within the family, um, like in the case of the Gerzon family um, coming to New Zealand, they no longer had a nanny when they came here, so that changed the family dynamics. Um, so it impacted domestic roles um, and the material objects also that were brought to New Zealand homes. Many of the domestic items brought to New Zealand included damask linen tablecloths, dinner sets, porcelain tea sets, um, and these reflected the family's um, bourgeois European lifestyle. However, as the families had no household help in New Zealand, and in fact many um, wives, um, refugee women, worked as house helps in New Zealand households um, to, to earn a living themselves. And many of these objects that they brought with them ended up discarded over time or not used again by the family except for um, ornamental purposes. Object usage was thus determined by the family's living conditions in refuge, but which material positions were brought to New Zealand were determined by the conditions at the moment of departure. The high cost of immigrating, caused by numerous German state decrees and taxes on Jewish-owned property, meant that Jewish, uh, that Jewish refugees often had to sell some of their possessions in order to raise funds. But by 1938, they were unable to gain virtually any value from the sale of their property and were also prohibited in many cases from exporting goods such as merchandise, furniture, professional trade tools, furs or jewellery, particularly after 1938. The Anschluss of Austria and the Kristallnacht program, program in 1938 radically accelerated the Nazi expropriation of Jewish property and also triggered the dramatic increase in refugees trying to leave Germany and Austria from 1938. The families featured here escaped Germany before the 11th decree of 1941, and so they were able, with one exception, to retain most of their household effects and personal belongings and bring these possessions to New Zealand. Possessions were usually shipped um, or brought to New Zealand in two groups. So household items were packaged into lifts or shipping containers and transported out to New Zealand by private companies, as in the case of the Galzon family. But refugees on the passenger ships also carried smaller personal items on their person. 
Because refugees travel to New Zealand in different groupings, some alone, some with networks of family, not all families could send additional luggage by cargo ship. For example, the Gazon family on the screen uh, travelled as a typical family group with their two young children, uh, Thomas and Eva, and had household furniture and other items transported separately. Transit migration also influenced what objects were brought to New Zealand. Having left Klein Flottbeck, Hamburg, comparatively early in 1933, architect Ernst Gauzon and his young family spent their first year in exile in Zagreb in the former Yugoslavia, where Ernst first found employment. The family then spent the next six years in Sofia, Bulgaria, before finally immigrating to New Zealand in 1939. During this period of transit migration, the Gauzons maintained postal contact with their non-Jewish friends who remained in Germany, such as the artist Hedwig Jacke. Um, and her painting is on the left of the screen. It's a copy of a, um, a much older painting, kind of in the Renaissance style, um, and it depicts St. Christopher um, walking through the water. Um, and so, yeah, Hedvig Jaka visited the family in Bulgaria while they were living there in 36. Precious handcrafted objects, hand-drawn sketch albums and painted artworks were kept from, by the family from this time and brought to New Zealand along with the original household items from Germany. Before and after fleeing Germany, music was a compulsive part of the composer Richard Richard Fuchs's daily life, um, so vital that he needed to have instruments and music near him constantly. The family's Karlsruhe um, apartment building in Baden-Württemberg in west, southwest Germany had two pianos, one in Richard's sitting room on the third floor where the family lived, and another one in his office on the ground floor from which he worked as a professional architect. Um, so on the, on the slide, um, we've got two objects from the Fuchs family. Um, on the left, there's um, Richard Fuchs's um, piano stall. Um, the piano itself isn't, um, wasn't brought over. That's a, a more recent piano, but um, the stall was his and is still used to play the piano, um, as you can see. And on the right-hand side of the slide, there's a, um, a soft toy. Um, looks like it's been kind of crocheted. Um, and that belonged to Ricard's youngest daughter, Sonny, um, or Sonia. And Ricard's daughter, Sonny, recalled that, recalled that her father kept the second piano in his office, quote, because every now and again he had to stop and play the piano. So although he had a successful career as an architect, Fuchs continued composing and was on the cusp of national fame in Germany when the rise of Hitler and the National Socialist Party ended both careers in Germany. Fuchs was at once forbidden to practice architecture and was restricted to producing only Jewish music to be played for only Jewish audiences. When the Fuchs family led, fled Germany in 1939, Rickard carried his handwritten compositions with him the entire journey to New Zealand on his person. Having organised for the German furniture removal firm Steffen to 
and transport the majority of their possessions by cargo ship, they could only hope that the company would follow through with their commission, as the 1938 decree on the registration of Jewish property made it legal for German businesses to seize undeclared property of Jews immigrating from German territories. Ricard's daughter, Sonny, um, was 11 years old when she and her family arrived in Wellington on 17th April 1939. She remembers the day the shipment finally arrived in Wellington, and notably, um, her, her quote says, everything was wrapped up very carefully and nothing had been pinched. In contrast to the other families of my study, the Zemon family brought only what they could carry in their personal luggage on the passenger ship to New Zealand. Liesel Zemon, aged 14, and her 16-year-old brother Eric left Hamburg, Germany on the Kindertransport in 1939, um, destined for England. In a 1997 interview, Liesel recalled, we were allowed to take one suitcase we could carry, and I remember I just had a few bits and pieces in it, nothing really personal, and I had a blanket strapped onto it, which I still have, which was my grandfather's. And um, in the slide, you can see the blanket, um, and it's, it's grey, um, it's black and white and um, knitted together with tassels, in very good condition. The children were later reunited with their widowed mother, Wally Zemon, nay Rosenbaum, um, in England, where they lived until they were accepted for immigration to New Zealand in late 1939. Wally and her son, Eric, travel, travelling to New Zealand first, followed by Liesel, who remained in England and did not arrive in New Zealand until 1940. Um, and in this next slide, you can see Liesel's name, Liesel Zemon, handwritten on a fabric label which has been stitched into the blanket. Upon escaping Germany, Liesel's mother organised to... Um, have virtually the entire house and contents, grand pianos and everything, all the furniture loaded onto a ship to sail for England. Um, however, the German merchant ship only reached P Portugal as the war was declared. And according to Liesel's son, Philip Green, the ship's captain worried his ship would fall into Allied possession uh, once it left the port. And so, uh, and this is what um, Philip told me, he sailed the ship out of the harbour and scuttled it. So the ship sunk and with it its cargo, um, including all of Orma's belongings, um, apart from a few tiny pieces that she brought out with her. So immigrating as war broke out in Europe, the Zemon family's household possessions were lost. Very few items from their family uh, life in Germany ended up in New Zealand. Um, after their extended migration journey, as it was all they had left. Persecution and immigration became pivotal points in refugees' life narratives, giving personal possessions meaning beyond their everyday practical or aesthetic significance as they moved with their owners into a new cultural context. For Rickard Fuchs, the compositions and sheet music he carried um, with him along with the family papers, money and passports, were both essential items and objects of sentimental value and of meaning, personal meaning. Carried into flight, such items have the potential, as social anthropologist David Parkin argues, 
to function as mobile depositories of, local, of cultural identity and knowledge to ensure continuity between generations. So these moments of departure were moments of dispossession. In being forced to flee, um, German Jewish refugees were dispossessed of their home and country, their loved ones, their belongings. Um, but the objects brought to New Zealand by, um, by these families are what remain from this process. Um, but they're also, um, at the same time as being objects of dispossession, they're simultaneously objects um, and symbols of survival through the very fact of their existence. So when considered in this way, refugee objects taken into exile become signifiers of a time before that was lost, but also of a time um, of a new life forged on foreign shores. And um, certainly there are examples of both um, what Wallen and Pomerantz um, describe as objects taken prospectively with an eye to its future use in the new country, or retrospectively, which is more to do with the connections um, to one's identity and past life. So there are examples of both in, new in these New Zealand examples. Um, and the Siddur, daily prayer book, which travelled with Liesl Simon, um, first to England and then to New Zealand. Um, in Liesl's case, her grandmother Siddur was one of only two items saved from the family synagogue when it was destroyed during Kristallnacht and was passed down to her and her mother when they left in Germany, uh, left Germany in 1939. And in the next slide, you can see an inscription uh, which has been translated from the German and it reads, this book should be a true guide for you in all situations that you encounter. May God protect you and watch over and keep you from danger, such as the destruction and the plundering of the temples on the night of 10 November 1938, Dainamuti. Um, and the text below this inscription, translated from the German, reads, Before my journey to New Zealand in November 1939, Hitchin, D, 12 November 1939. More ornamental objects, like the Gauzon's painting of St Christopher, by Hedwig Jaka, was used to decorate the new homes of refugees in New Zealand, just as they did once did in Germany. But their aesthetic purpose was heightened in the New Zealand context. Besides his Christian symbolism as the patron saint of travellers, the St Christopher painting reflected a popular interwar trend among German middle classes, including non-Aryans, to decorate their homes with Christian religious icons. Um, according to Caroline Atan, the physical arrangement and display of objects and furniture was used by um, migrants to articulate domestic and personal worlds, where, quote, memories of the past find expression in the present as they are both literally and metaphorically taken from one cultural environment to another. Such ornamental Christian objects, therefore, never carried any religious meaning but were instead beautiful objects, representative of the European culture to which the families belonged and that which they wished to display in their New Zealand homes. The various ways objects were used by refugees to survive in a new world, often by transferring practices and traditions from their lost um, previous world, shows the potential for material histories to rebalance the characterization of Holocaust refugees within the historical narrative by personalizing their individual experience. 
persecution and immigration were pivotal points um, in their lives that gave mere objects meaning beyond their everyday. In the case of New Zealand refugees from Nazism, our understanding of their unique wartime experience is broadened by consideration of the material record. So by examining material objects as they've been passed from first generation to the second generation and then into the public archive, my research sought to introduce a new approach to thinking about the experience of migration as an intergenerational legacy of the Holocaust and of exilic material culture as a metaphor and vehicle for memory. Used as historical sources, um, mere things become signifiers of a past world otherwise distant, fractured and um, by Holocaust and exile. But material culture can reveal far more than just the obvious signifiers like cultural identity, gender, religion, education and social class. By their very nature and provenance, objects brought into exile are testament to the processes of dispossession and also survival. Combined with the power of recorded oral testimony, museum curators are now using such objects to record the voices and stories of Holocaust survivors. Collections curator Shannon Biederman from the Sydney Jewish Museum films object-centered interviews where objects as the physical reference point for people's stories are held and referred to by the survivor as they speak directly to the camera. According to Biederman, it will be the collections that come to the forefront when the survivor's community have gone. And so I would argue it is these connections between individual experience and the material record um, that should be illuminated further. Persecution and immigration were the, was, a, was a turning point um, that, which changed the meaning of these objects beyond their everyday. Um, and in the case of New Zealand refugees from Nazism, our understanding of their wartime experiences is enriched by their consideration. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have time for questions, and we have um, we have two microphones that we're going to um, pass around. Thanks, Louisa. One point that interests me is the size of the sample of families that you were able to deal with, and and how it's is it possible to actually say that what you looked at and and uh, curated is representative or is it just it has to be treated merely as a sample because there were many more refugees and many more different circumstances for their actually leaving and having to come to New Zealand? Yeah, thank you for your question, David. Um, I definitely think it needs to be um, treated as a, as a case study. Um, I had 12 months to do this um, project, the 12-month um, master's by thesis at Vic. Um, so, I, yeah, I was very limited with what I could do with that time. Um, but I did want to be able to get into the details of, of those um, case studies that I looked at. So um, certainly I think there's room for more research on this topic, definitely, yeah. Yeah, to get a more representative understanding of of people's experiences. Yeah, I guess I should know the answer, but what motivated this in the first place, please? 
Um, so I studied um, Holocaust and genocide paper in uh, my third year and I did that with um, Simone Giliotti who ended up becoming my supervisor and I also did a project that summer on um, how asylum seekers and refugees are represented um, in how contemporary refugees and asylum seekers are represented in film. Um, and so I I was very lucky that I was able to, um, that she supported me to take a material culture approach to a historic subject, um, which in the history department doesn't always happen. So, yeah, I was very lucky that I could kind of bring together a lot of my interests into this into this um, thesis, yeah. Louisa, you touched on, uh, on uh, the refugees who arrived here with possessions. What you didn't really touch on, and this made me feel a bit guilty, about the reception of all these artifacts in New Zealand. And as you spoke, I felt very guilty about just auctioning all my mother's possessions. And when my mother passed away, we sent everything down to the auction room and got a pittance for it. Nobody could appreciate it. There were all these um, mock late um, Dutch paintings, because these were the fashionable paintings in their time. I don't know how much they sold for, but nobody appreciated it. Um, I think one of the things that illustrated the story is that two of our most precious possessions were a grand piano that my father was given for, I believe, for his 13th birthday. And, um, and he, we kept that as long as my mother lived. And another one was a set of gramophone, if, I, if any of you still remember what a gramophone record is. Um, a set of gramophone records of Tchaikovsky's piano concerto played by Vladimir Horowitz, carefully packed, and when we unpacked it, every record was broken. But, but the, all these were so irrelevant to life in New Zealand that when my mother passed away, it never occurred to us that we ought to keep some of the, not the, not the broken records, but, the, but the, her plates, her pictures, they're gone because they were just irrelevant to New Zealand. And I think the other side of, of this is these people came with possessions but these possessions were totally alien to the world they came to. Mm. There's a disconnect, wasn't there, between the objects and and what meaning they may have held or no or or not. I mean, part of um, I mean, for some people, the the objects, yeah, didn't they lost their meaning um, over the over the period of. Um, adjusting to life in New Zealand and and getting on um, with things. So, um, and it, yeah, it is often only f many years later um, when, when um, questions are asked about um, their, their first generation's experience. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's the disconnect that I think is um, what contributes to that happening, yeah, which can't really be helped. 
I just wondered if this kind of like object elicitation type methodology had influenced your work at all since becoming a museum professional? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I can't think of any direct um, connections between what I, I did in this project and, and my working life, but it did make me think more deeply about um, the process of donations to museums and, um, and the reasons why people donate or, or choose not to donate and, and that sort of thing, and also how, how stories can get lost in the interim and, yeah, the importance of museums capturing as much information as possible um, at the time of acquisition. So, My name's Carol Ratnam, and thank you for your talk. Um, I'm really interested if there's been any work about comparing this with families who came after, because anecdotally I come from a family that went through the camps and were in Bergen Belsen for a couple of years before they came. And interestingly enough, what came out was dinner services, fine china, the similar things. And I think it's not the thing itself that was most important to my Austrian mother. It was the cultural connection with things that were of um, how you behave and... Um, things that uh, transcend where you are is mainly who you are. Mm. And um, I just wonder if there's been any study on a sort of social anthropological basis for these artefacts. Not that I'm aware of, but that would be a really um, rich um, area to to look into, to compare, um, especially um, people who... Yeah, also went through the DP, displaced persons camps, um, and reconnected, um, were able to reconnect with family um, in that period and then immigrated to various places um, because, yes, their experience would be completely different um, in some ways. So, yeah, I'm not aware of any, but there, there might be some out there that's... Um, that's been looking into that subject. Yeah. Louisa, thank you for your talk. Very interesting. My question ties in with the theme of objects of memory creating continuity across generations. And I can think of many rare books as the one illustrated in your PowerPoint um, that were part of um, former refugees' suitcases. And I can also think of many families who would like to store those books. Um, they are real, really valuable artifacts. Um, do you think that your research can create more interest in those rare books, their archiving and their preservation for the future? I certainly hope so. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I hope that um, this topic is um, yeah thought about more deeply um, by people and and especially um, like having worked on done some work on as part of the f um, centenary of the First World War. Um, I my thoughts already go towards the centenary of the Second World War and how 
on earth we are going to um, mark that. And so, and I, I think material culture and, and artifacts are going to be, yeah, really important um, for that. So I, I hope that, yeah, people um, will think about this topic and also um, um, apply it to other um, examples of migration to New Zealand um, because those stories um, are really important because it's all about who we are as a country today. Yeah. So, yes. 